This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on Something You Should Know, before the mid-60s, there were no pop-top cans. I'll tell you how that changed. Then, secrets. Keeping dark secrets can be harmful. It's not the more we find ourselves having to hide the secret in conversation, it's the more we find ourselves repetitively thinking about the secret time and time again. That's associated with feeling ashamed for your secret, feeling isolated with your secret, and feeling inauthentic for having it. Also, something important you need to do with the stuff in the back of your car. And ever have that experience of someone not returning a text or email and you start to think something's wrong? Did I do something? First of all, to jump to the conclusion that something is wrong is irrational. To jump to the conclusion that it's about you is irrational. And then, almost always, we come up with a worst-case scenario All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi. So let's begin this episode of the podcast with a little imagination exercise, a little journey back in time. Close your eyes and imagine it's a hot summer day. You're really thirsty and you reach for an ice cold can of soda or beer. Well, if it was back before the mid 60s and you didn't have a can opener, you are out of luck. Today, of course, we have pop top cans, but back then, no opener, no drink. In 1959, Ernie Fraze, I think it's Fraze, or maybe it's Frazee, F-R-A-Z-E. Anyway, Ernie Fraze was at a picnic with some friends, and nobody brought a can opener. 
So he ended up using his car bumper (laughs) to somehow open the beverage cans. But that got him to thinking. Soon, he invented the first pop-top can. With his first version, you pulled the tab completely off the can and threw it away. He received a patent for it, and he sold that patent to the Alcoa Aluminum Company. Iron City Beer, made in Pittsburgh, was the first beverage to use the pop-top can in the mid-60s, and their sales soared. Soon after, other beverage companies began using it. Then in the mid-70s, outcry from environmentalists led to the development of the can top that we know today that uses non-removable tabs. But if it weren't for Ernie Fraze, who knows how many hours of our lives we would have wasted looking for that can opener. By the way, Ernie died in 1989 at the age of 76 and left an estate worth $41 million. And that is something you should know. I'm pretty sure that you are keeping a secret because everyone keeps secrets. Some secrets are pretty benign. Some secrets you keep because, well, they're nobody else's business. While other secrets you keep because you feel guilt or shame or fear that people would think less of you if they only knew. These are the kind of secrets that can feel like a burden. Then there are secrets that other people ask you to keep. And those kind of secrets can weigh heavy as well. There's some fascinating research going on about secrets and what keeping them does to us. And right in the thick of that research is Michael Slepian. He's a social psychologist and professor at Columbia Business School. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks for having me. So I read this quote from you in an article that I thought was really interesting. And the reason I wanted to discuss this topic with you on the podcast You're quoted as saying, it's not how much you hide a secret that's harmful, but how often you find yourself thinking about it. So let's start there. Explain what you mean by that. When we think about secrecy and when we think about what a secret is, a lot of people naturally imagine two people in a room, one person hiding the secret from the other person because they're talking about something related to the secret. Um, For a very long time, decades, psychologists assumed that's why our secrets hurt us because hiding things in conversation is stressful and that's bad for our well-being. But it turns out that that's actually a a pretty rare experience. Um, How many times have you had the experience where someone's asking you about your secret? We find it just doesn't happen all that often. Um, The much more common experience we have with our secrets is simply thinking about them in our own heads. Um, And this is where it turns out to be is is the real harm. Uh, It's not the more we find ourselves having to hide the secret in conversation. It's the more we find ourselves repetitively thinking about the secret outside those conversations, which is associated with harm to well-being. Because why? What what is thinking about a secret doing to you that's causing harm? Yeah. So so first for hiding, you know, the whole point of a secret is to hide it when required, right? So if it just so happens that you're in a conversation, you have to hide your secret. It's like, okay, you you did a good job. You did exactly what you set out to do. Um, That's that stress. If there is any is, is very short lived. But when you're on your own time, you have all the time in the world to think about your secret. And unfortunately, because it's something you've chosen to be alone with, typically, uh, you don't have the most healthy way of thinking about that thing. Uh, so we find that the more people find themselves mind wandering, their, their minds returning to the secret time and time again, uh, that's associated with feeling ashamed for your secret, feeling isolated with your secret and feeling inauthentic for having it. 
people often talk about that they have no secrets, let's say, from their partner. We have no yeah. secrets. We're, we're, we're open with everybody. And, and maybe there, it's worth discussing the difference between keeping a secret and just being private. Is, do, you, do you make the differentiation? Yes, absolutely. And so a great way to distinguish those because there's some gray area in between and, you know, they can even overlap. Um, you could you could want to keep something back for both privacy and secrecy. But a great way to separate them is to ask, if this ever came up in conversation, would you want to hide it? Or could you imagine a world where you'd be willing to discuss it if you were comfortable? Um, you know, take sex, for example. Sex is not something we tend to talk about as much uh, as we think about it. <laughs> and so, but that's out of privacy. You know, you have to feel comfortable um, talking about that kind of thing with, with someone. That's very different from having a specific sexual experience that you want nobody to know. Uh, another good example is, you know, maybe you don't talk about family at work, but that's privacy. The fact that you have a family is not a secret. Why is secrecy often called a you know keeping secrets is often thought of as a burden what why 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 is that it's a good question you know we could imagine this alternate universe where secrecy is easy um and in fact it's not hard to imagine this universe first of all we know people very rarely ask people about each other's secrets um we know it's pretty uncommon that you actually have to hide your secret uh, and when we do, we find most people feel pretty capable uh, in in hiding their secret in conversation, um, that it's not so hard. And so despite all of that, secrecy is burdensome. And I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is to keep a secret is to be alone with something. And, and people tend to not want to be alone. We often tell people secrets, I guess, to what, unburden ourselves, to share a secret. And, you know, what's the saying that, you know, the only way... Two people can keep a secret is if one of them's dead. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that primarily when people reveal secrets is because they don't want to be alone with that thought. They want to get some help with that thought. And when we choose to share a, a secret with someone, it's often someone well chosen. Um, you know, we we know which of our friends are. are not judgmental and who will be kind and compassionate. We know who will sort of hear us out and who will say like, that sucks. I'm here for you. And because we choose our confidants carefully, the the most common response to sharing a secret is a very helpful one. Um, and it turns out you don't even need that much help. You just need a very small hint of help. And it often leads people feeling much better. What are the most common kinds of secrets people keep? I know you say that there are 38 categories, basically, uh, 38 categories of secrets. What are the most common? So the most common uh, among those 38 categories we use so frequently in our research include things like lies we've told or violating someone's trust, sex is up there uh, in, in various forms, um, dissatisfaction with certain relationships or, or work. Other common ones include things like drug use and, you know, a secret belief or a, a secret ambition or a secret preference or some personal story that you hold back from other people. And isn't it interesting that the word secret has somewhat of a, I don't know if a negative connotation is, is the right thing, but there's something a little bit naughty about it. Like you're keeping a secret because of some kind of reason that you shouldn't almost. Yeah, most of our secrets are indeed negative in, in the way that you mentioned, which is why the common responses to, to having a secret include things like guilt and you know shame and uh, feeling inauthentic. But 
secrets don't have to be negative. Um, there's there are instances where where they're not negative or they're very neutral. Um, but you're right; they often tend to be negative for the very reason that you've chosen. This is something I am not sure people should know, or I don't want people to know, um, because that's such a common motivation for secrecy. They do tend to be associated with this sort of negative feeling you're describing. Well, do you consider things like, you know, secret ambitions and desires, are those secrets? Because they're really just thoughts about maybe in the future. They're not things you did. This, this is, I, I can give you one more example. So I do think they're secrets. Uh, uh, another really good example of just a thought uh, that is secret. In fact, this is the most common secret that people tell no one about. Uh, and that's what we call extra relational thoughts. You're in a relationship and you have some kind of romantic relational thought about another person. Uh, and that's just a thought. But people say it's something they hold back. It's something they don't share with other people. It's something they keep secret. Well, to me, the, I mean, the reason you would keep that secret, there is no benefit to anybody of not keeping that secret. To tell people that you're having lustful thoughts about someone else serves no one. So why tell? Yeah. And so it's good to know if other of your secrets fit that category or if you're holding a secret that doesn't fit that category. Um, that's a signal that maybe you could, let go, you could let go of that one or share that one. What about when you're keeping other people's secrets, when people confide in you and say, you know, don't tell anybody but... <laughs> just so you're right that's very common and we've studied that phenomenon and so there's both good and bad that comes from that um we'll start with the good first um when people trust us to share a sensitive secret with us we recognize that as an act of intimacy it can make people feel closer with each other but now that you have been confided the secret, now it's a secret that you might have to hide on the other person's behalf. We find, especially if social networks overlap, you're in a pretty difficult situation because now you're holding on to the secret that other people may not know that you see regularly who are potentially involved or, or would want to know. And so while being confided in is taken as this act of intimacy, um, we can also become burdened with other people's secrets as well. I imagine that most of us, well, probably everybody, take some secrets to their grave. And, and is there a price to pay for that? Or, or do, at some point, do you make peace with your secrets and you don't dwell on them and you don't think about them? They, they, they are what they are. They, they happened the way they happened. They're in the past and you get to move on and nobody needs to know. You're asking the hard question. Um, there were certainly some secrets that perhaps we have done the calculus wrong. Um, and actually, it would be better to, to get that off your chest and be better to give that information. Um, I think you're totally right that people will sometimes take secrets to their grave. I've had people share stories with me uh, about finding out a secret that someone took to the grave. Um, and for that person, sometimes it's like, oh, I wish, I wish they felt comfortable enough telling me. Um, and now that now we can never do that. And so I think it's a good practice to think about the secrets you have and, and to question yourself, is this really the right thing? Should this really be kept secret from this person? Sometimes the right thing to do is to reveal it. And it, it, if you're not sure, a really great thing to do is to talk to someone totally removed from the situation. Um, it's really hard to figure these things out on your own and you don't have to. We're talking about secrecy and the pros and cons of keeping secrets. 
My guest is Michael Slepian. He is a social psychologist and professor at Columbia Business School. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Michael, there are people who you might describe as secretive that, that keep everything very close to the vest. And then there are other people who tell everybody everything. And is there any reason to believe that the open book kind of people are healthier, happier or, or not? So what's tricky about that question is this idea that secrecy is just one thing. Um, and so, you know, what, especially when we think about it with the old way of thinking about it, you know, the hard part about secrets is hiding them. You, would, you should definitely think that someone who's keeping more secrets should be worse off. Um, but it really matters uh, what they're keeping secret. Um, it could be just really trivial things that other people like to share for fodder for conversation that people choose to hold back themselves. Uh, but if, it's, if you're holding back something that you're struggling with, now it's a very different story. Even if it's just one thing, um, if it's really troubling, it, it could be really harmful to, to hold it back. And is that struggle, is that what makes secrets difficult because you, you come back and you think about them and you rehash them and struggle with them? Or because can you have a deep, dark and somewhat disturbing secret, but if you somehow make peace with it and leave it alone, then are you okay? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, um, yes, to both things you said, um, you know, it is primarily the harm is is struggling alone with something. Um, because if you're alone with something, it's pretty much guaranteed that you're, you're not, you haven't found the very best way to think about that, because that's really hard to do without other people without another perspective or a fresh set of eyes and ears on the problem. Um, but if you really have found a way to make peace with the secret, on your own, um, if, if that's really the case, yeah, uh, you, you should be fine. Um, it's just often hard to do that on your own. It seems to me that time has the ability to soften difficult memories. But when something's a secret and that you're not able to, to kind of get it out because you're keeping it secret, do secrets soften with time? Do people think about them differently? Is time good to secrets? I do think over time, people think about these things in different ways, typically in the more helpful direction. You know, the farther this thing is in your past and the less relevant it is for today, I think it is easier to put the thought down and it is easier to sort of make peace with it. There has to be some comfort in numbers, I guess. You said, and you've been quoted in this article I was reading, that 97% of people have secrets in these 38 categories you mentioned. 
basically everybody has some deep, dark secret. And knowing that maybe makes it a little easier to carry your own secret. Yeah. And I think that that recognition alone can sometimes be really helpful when people feel utterly alone with something to recognize. Actually, this is a pretty common experience. The problem is people don't talk about it. Given that this is such a universal experience, that everybody has secrets and keeps secrets from other people, what do we do with this information? What do we, knowing what you've been telling us for the last 15 minutes, so now what? What do we do with this? So I think the very first thing to do is take a look at your secrets and and remind yourself, what are those secrets you're keeping? Um, You know, there's some that you have top of mind today, and there's some that you haven't thought about in, say, a year. Um, The way we help people do this is we give them this list of 38 common categories of secrets that people keep. And we know that list is pretty comprehensive um, because the average person has at least the 97% of people we see uh, have at least one of the secrets from the list at this current moment. We see the average person at any given moment has 13 secrets from that list of 38 categories. Um, and if we just ask people sort of open-ended, uh, what's the secret you're keeping? 92% of the time, it fits one of those categories. And so these, these really well represent the kinds of things people keep secret. And we see pretty commonly someone will say, oh, wow, I haven't thought about that secret in a while. And just thinking about your secrets, kind of scrutinizing them. It seems that in keeping a secret, the best you can hope for is you you keep a secret. That way people don't find out this thing that bothers you, that you would feel bad if they knew. And that's about the best you can hope for in keeping a secret. Or is there some other silver lining to secrets that we haven't talked about? You know, we think of our secrets as this thing, this sort of terrible thing that brings us down. But each secret has this real source of power. Sharing it with someone is is a really intimate act, and it can really bring people together. There's 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 this other power that you can use them for for good, depending on the secret, I imagine. Of course, and depending on who you're telling, I imagine. Absolutely, we we find that people are looking for certain things, certain qualities in their confidants. Um, one of, one of the things they're looking for most is compassion, someone who will be non-judgmental and express empathy and, and caring and support. And, you know, maybe they don't even have any advice. They just say, that sucks, or, or I hear you. Um, and that might be all you need. Another thing people are sometimes looking for is assertiveness, uh, someone who will push you to do something. And we find those are the two things people are looking for in their confidants. Um, what people don't want in their confidants, people tend to confide less in people who are polite and, and concerned with rules. And people also confide less in people who are very socially outgoing. Um, I think you could expect why. When someone shares a secret with the hopes of unburdening themselves, of feeling better because they kind of got it out, does it actually do that? Do people tend to feel better when they unburden themselves of their secrets? And if so, how long does that last? So if it can feel it can feel great in the moment, um, and that that's meaningful on its own. Um, sometimes revealing a secret anonymously online feels great in the moment, um, but for that to last, typically for that to last. Um, you are hoping for some kind of response. And so this is, you know, the the risk with just revealing a secret. And if you don't get that sort of positive response back, you sort of didn't, you didn't get the second half of, of what normally comes when we share secrets with, with other people feeling relieved 
to get it off our chest and, and getting help. Um, and so it lasts much longer if you get some kind of help. Um, and it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be a, a new perspective. It could be some advice. It could be the person saying, I'm here for you. Um, that's what will make it last longer. The benefits is, is getting something back from the person you're sharing it with. When you look at the way people handle secrets, do you see gender differences? Do men do this differently than women? The only notable gender difference we see in this data is that women seem to confide their secrets more often in others, whereas men are more likely to keep a secret entirely to themselves. And I think that matches well what we know about gender roles and social roles and, and how you know we might have a stereotype uh, about what, you know, we might have a stereotype that sharing something makes you vulnerable and it is, it's sort of this emotional act. And, you know, there, I'm sure there are men out there who, who associate that um, not with masculinity. And that might be why we see that. The way we keep secrets and reveal secrets and keep other people's secrets, is this a human thing or does it vary culture by culture or what? We're doing this research right at this moment. And so the results are still coming in, but I can tell you that there are a lot of similarities um, in how secrets affect people. Um, and these cultural differences that we're just beginning to find, I would say are more at the edges um, than in the sort of front and center. It means though that a lot of this research we're coming out with and giving people advice about secrets, it seems to be more universally helpful than, than not. Well, this is a topic that I think affects everyone. And I know you said that there were those 38 categories of secrets that people keep. And you have a website where people can go and explore those categories. And, uh, and what is that website? Yeah. So if people go to keepingsecrets.org, uh, that'll take you right to the survey where you can see those 38 categories of secrets. And, and if you want, you can sort of add yourself to our, to our growing large data set. Once you're on that page, uh, you can explore these 38 categories of secrets and which ones are more common across certain age groups or certain genders. And um, you can sort of play with the data. Uh, and we allow people to do that at that website. What I think is so interesting is that people are keeping secrets in hopes that nobody finds out about their secret. And it can be a very lonely feeling thinking you're the only one with this secret, not realizing that everybody else is doing exactly the same thing. Michael Slepian has been my guest. He is a social psychologist and professor at Columbia Business School. And that website he mentioned, keepingsecrets.org, uh, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Thanks for coming on, Michael. This has been really fun. Thank you. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, 
something you should know? I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Today, like never before, you can pretty much get a hold of anybody in your life or at work anytime you want, as long as you have their phone number or email address. And even if they don't pick up the phone or answer your text or email right away, they'll get back to you fairly quickly. You hope. But what if they don't? What if time passes and you start to figure, you should have heard from them by now, and now you start to think, well, why aren't they calling me back? Is something wrong? Are they mad? Did they have an accident? You actually have no idea why they're not calling you back, but your mind starts to fill the void with possible reasons, and it can really drive you nuts. This is a fairly universal problem that causes stress and concern in a lot of people. And here with some interesting insight into the problem is Sam George. He's author of a book called I'll Get Back to You, The Discommunication Crisis, Why Unreturned Messages Drive Us Crazy and What to Do About It. Hi, Sam. So let's dive right in here and start with text messages. How do you get someone to read and reply to a text message? What's the the way to ensure that? Well, the first thing you need to do with both emails and text is use the person's first name. First names, the neuroscience is crazy about this. I mean, it's absolutely the biggest trigger, a positive trigger that we have is our first name. So both in emails and in text, you begin with their first name, and then you use their first name throughout the, at least two or three times in an email, and, you know, kind of intermittently in a, in a text conversation, because that's what keeps them tuned. But what will get them to, to, to pay attention to it is address them by their name. So that'll get them to read the text. But how do you get people to respond quickly? Because, you know, I've gotten texts and I don't respond because, you know, it's, it's going to take too long. It's going to be a big explanation. And so, so I put it off or, or maybe I even forget. So what's the way to get people to respond quickly? It's important to be clear, not on just what, the, what you're asking for. It's, it's also important to be clear Uh, to try and create a limit situation, you know, yes, no, either, or. Uh, Because if you send, for example, a message to say, what do you think? That's not going anywhere. Or I need your feedback. That's not going anywhere. But if you pose these things as, do you agree or disagree? No, that's going to force a, a more clear response. So that's it. That's that's the key thing is you'd be very clear about the question, but you you frame the answer in terms of a of a yes, yes, no, either or agree, disagree. What's known as a limit situation, limit situations force force action. Let's talk about email, because that's another way that we get in touch with people in hopes, usually of a fairly quick response. How do you make sure that you get a quick response? There are ways to, you, you have to get this. There's two things you have to do. First, with emails, you have to uh, get them to open the email. People are very busy. And I know from, because I do a lot of digital fundraising and digital marketing, the key is the subject line. So you can't use an obvious subject line. You have to come up with something different. 
in order to get them to open it up. So that's the first step. Um, you have to create curiosity or something that's different. The, the worst thing you can do in the, in the subject line is to put the subject. Um, because what that happens is that people will see that and they'll file it. And the problem is they forget. That's the problem of why people don't return these messages are overly delayed. They get filed. Yeah, yeah, because I, I know what you mean, because I've gotten emails and in the subject line, it'll say, you know, Thursday's meeting or dinner Wednesday. And when I see that in the subject line, I kind of already know what the email's about. So I, I don't need to open it, so I don't. And then I may not come back to it because it, it was just a subject line, so it didn't really, it didn't really register. So if I don't come back to it and read it, and then I don't respond. So if you don't get them to open it on the spot, your chances drop substantially of them ever returning the message. So if they open the message on the spot, they're likely to return on the spot. And the only way you can do that is the subject line. It doesn't matter what's in the email. Whether someone opens an email or not has to do with the subject line. And the worst thing you can do is use a predictable subject line. You know, you can use things that are funny. You can come up with other things that create curiosity. There's certain buzzwords you can use like thank you or things like that that will get them to open it up. Uh, you know, you could Google subject lines. They're all, they don't have to be real crazy or or a tactic that I use is I just leave the subject line open a lot of times. And, and you know, people open it because it's, there's no subject line. And it, the worst thing you can do is put a subject that's about the subject. If you're the sender of the message because you're trying to get a hold of somebody or you're trying to get some information or some sort of reply and you don't get it, and you start to do that thing where you wonder, are they mad at me? What's wrong? Am I getting fired? Whatever it is, how do you how do you manage your own expectations of that so your mind doesn't start to do that? We can't, Mike. You know that. You probably tried. What's going on here is known as pattern recognition. The brain has to complete patterns and store patterns. That's how it processes information. So an unreturned message is a loop to be, you know, is, an is, is a pattern that needs to be completed. And it's actually the brain, subconsciously, the brain that, that forces us into the worst case scenario. And this is true uh, uh, in other areas. For example, if, um, if someone is late, something terrible happened, an accident, quickly, boom, out of the gate. So again, that's a, that there's an unresolved situation, which is a broken loop. The pattern has not been completed, and we go to a worst-case scenario. Why a worst-case scenario? Well, a worst-case scenario provides a firm ending. A story or a narrative has to have an ending in order to, to, to be a narrative. And so for the, it's actually the, the brain's pattern recognition process. But for that same reason, uh, Mike, I, that's why, because of completing the loop, that's why if you get them to open the email on the spot, you have a very good chance of them responding on the spot because they want to close the loop. And when people don't respond and you, you, you feel like you should reach out again, what, what, what's your sense? When do you do that? When do you restrain yourself? What do you say if you do that kind of thing? 
that's the second piece. That's another piece of the strategy is that you'd be surprised how many people don't follow up um, because they feel that it's awkward or they'll piss them off, et cetera. You should definitely follow up within 24 hours. But in your follow up, don't put them on the defensive. Like, don't forward them the email. Did you get my email? <laughs> Basically, rewrite the email, um, reformat it, put a new subject line on it, and, and, and essentially make the same points. And if you can say, I'm following up, that's fine. But there's no need to reference the previous message. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, you can do that if you want. But it's not necessary. As I said in my previous email, it doesn't matter that you send a past message. It matters that they get this message and that they read it. What about a text message, though? If you send another text message that says the same thing, they're going to see these two messages back to back that say the same thing. Well, I think you have to try a different approach with the text message. What I suggest is that you come into that person and send them a text about a different issue, okay, um, to see if that they'll open that. Uh, it doesn't have to be on that issue. Typically, for example, with clients and people, a lot of times I'll just send FYI articles to them or messages when I need to prod them to respond. So that's, that's the best thing you can do in text messages. But the worst thing to do, again, if you address them by their first name, they're very likely to respond. If you say in a sentence what the subject is and what the question and answer is, the problem of text is there's almost always these texts are open-ended. That's the last thing you should do. If you're looking for a reaction, it should be, um, what do you think? Again, yes, no, agree, disagree. Um, so, so use their first name, tell them what the question is very specifically, and then three, frame it in a yes, no situation. I imagine everyone has had the experience of not getting a message returned, either a text or an email or a phone call. And after a while, you start to imagine all kinds of things. Uh, they're mad, they're upset. Uh, it's about you or something horrible has gone wrong. And I know you said you've done polling and that it's, you know, like 85% of the time when people do that, the story they make up is incorrect, at least 85% of the time. And and yet we we do. And, and usually it's, we think there, that has something to do with us. First of all, to jump to the conclusion that something is wrong is irrational. To jump to the conclusion that it's about you is irrational. And then almost always we come up with a worst case scenario. And at that point, we catastrophize and it forms a negative loop that repeats, Mike. Uh, I mean, you've probably experienced that. This is, this is not a one shot feeling. It does seem, though, you know, listening to you, that that we're all in the same boat, and there is some comfort in that. That you know, that it isn't just you, it isn't just me. It's every everybody gets that anxiety, and and there is some comfort in numbers. Very few people talk about this, and um, I that's what what the purpose of this book is to get people to realize that we all go through this, 
and that it's not us. I mean, that it's actually our brain that's creating these situations, that we're not insecure, that we're not, that we're, we don't have low self-esteem, that we're actually, it's our brain. It's a cognitive glitch. You know, what created this whole situation, the shift from a direct feedback loop in about 1990 to this situation where emails and texts are predominant is, is arguably the biggest shift in human communication, even, even the printing press. That's all we've ever known in terms of conversations is direct feedback. Go to a meeting or have a conversation with a friend. You go out for coffee. You feel good. You feel good after a conversation. You feel that you've been heard. You've been understood. Questions have been answered. And, um, you know, you have full understanding. But with this open, broken loop of, of digital, you never know where you stand. Uh, there's a constant way, you know, anxiety and buzz and concern over the emails that we've sent and what's going on with them. What did they think? Um, will they get back to me? When, but, but really, the biggest anxiety is over, will they be misunderstood? And it's quite easy to misunderstand people because people are not communicating clearly. So what's created this situation is the move from instant feedback to uh, fragmented, diluted. I mean, the feedback's all over the place. I mean, there, there is no... There is no direct feedback loop. That is the backbone of communication for all of history till 1990. And that backbone is so important because it creates a solid foundation for communication and relationships. And, and this unstable uh, form of texts and emails, instability creates instability in our relationships and misunderstandings all the time. I text for some things, simple things, you know, what do you need me to get at the store kind of things. But I, I would rather, if, if I really need information from you, I would rather talk to you face-to-face or on the phone or, or even maybe an email. But texting seems to me to be the one that is most likely to cause misinterpretation and miscommunication. I, I integrate everything through my email. So I will set up calls through my email. So there's not that uncertainty of waiting for voice messages because that can create similar sorts of anxieties. But absolutely, I, I, text is, a, is not a very uh, productive or um, secure way of communicating with people. It's just become so widely uh, acceptable. I don't think we're going to get out of it. I, I, I prohibit it. Basically, all the people that I deal with, I say we're either going to do it by phone or by email. With email, you know, there's you can actually create a narrative. You know, when you write a text, you're not composing, you're reacting. And when you write an email, you're composing. So I suggest to use email over text. And there's always that that possibility of misinterpreting someone's you know because there is no vocal inflection there's no facial expressions there's there's nothing and you you someone might say sure in a text and you don't know if they're being sarcastic or if they're being um honest or you it, it, 
That's a good point, Mike. That's another component that there is. The ambiguity is also the disembodiment. And on a phone, you and I, for example, we may not be able to read body language, but the inflection of our voice is effectively body language. Um, you know, I can tell. You can. I can tell through. You know, I mean, body language is overdone. I mean, essentially through voice inflection, as you know, in your business. You do lots of interviews. You can do everything you can by voice inflection uh, that you can for body language, you know, within reason. So let's quickly review the advice here, because we, we want to be able to send a text, we want to be able to send an email and get a response fairly quickly so we, we don't do that thing where, uh, what's wrong? Oh, they must be mad at me. I don't know why they're not responding. So... In order to ensure that that quick response comes quickly, what's the advice? As best as you can with emails and texts, make sure you try and get them to open it right away through the subject line or in the case of the text. Always begin with their first name. Use their first name as many times as you can. And then in terms of what you, you it's got to be a very specific question. It demands a response, and and then you need to set that response. Now you can't say yes, no to every, you know, you, but but with that kind of an either or yes, no, because that's what's known as a limit situation. When people have limit situations, it forces them to to respond. Those are the things, you know, it's the subject line and the first names that are most important. Believe me, I have about two dozen other things, but but essentially. It's that basic. Provide content and essentially pose a question and ask for a concrete answer that's in a yes, no, either or uh, limit situation, not an open-ended thing like, um, how are you doing? Or uh, I need your feedback. Yeah, well, that's pretty easy to do. And if you're intentional about those, just those few things, you're much more likely to get the response you want. Sam George has been my guest. He is a digital marketing and fundraising expert, and he's author of the book, I'll Get Back to You, The Discommunication Crisis, Why Unreturned Messages Drive Us Crazy and What to Do About It. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Sam. Okay, Mike. Take care. Think for a moment, what's in the backseat of your car? Maybe a laptop or some toys, groceries. Well, the fact is, if you get in an accident, those items can become dangerous projectiles. In fact, if a driver breaks suddenly from 30 miles an hour, items in the back seat could hit the driver with the same force as if they had been dropped from a two-story building. A driver in British Columbia several years ago was killed when her laptop became a projectile and hit her in the head during a crash. So the advice is, from Consumer Reports, to store your groceries and luggage in the trunk where they can't hurt anyone. If you have to store heavy items in the car, they should be stored as far forward as possible, preferably on the floor and as close to the center of the vehicle as possible. Box up little items and toys floating around the car that could become dangerous projectiles in a crash, and then secure that box somewhere safe. It's also smart to get rid of old soda cans and snack bags in your car that could lodge under the brake or gas pedal and really mess up your driving. 
And that is something you should know. I always like to ask that if you enjoyed listening to this episode, that you share it. Tell someone you know about it so they can enjoy it as well. And it helps us to grow our audience. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.